You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast, and today I'm joined by guest Rick from Scottish Watches. On a previous episode, I interviewed his podcast um, co-host, Ricky. It's Ricky and Rick of Scottish Watches, and now we have Rick. Rick, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. And nice to be, I don't know whether it means that he was the warm-up act and I'm now in the main event. He was the warm-up, that's right. He was like the kind of amateur comic, and now the, yes. now the big guns are coming oh, out. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. Yes, I'm very well yeah. yourself. How are you? I'm, I'm good. This is actually my, my second podcast today. He had told me that you guys have been doing two episodes um, for a few years now, like per a week, and yep. you're up to over 260 episodes. Correct. I, in total, have done more in all the podcasts I've done, but but I haven't done a show that's actually done that many. Um, and he and I were spending a lot of time talking about me getting into podcasting. I'll just sort of really quickly tell you, in case you didn't tell. I started in 2009 or so, and mine was the first um, watch podcast with a show called Our Time. Then my partner, John Biggs, and I, we stopped doing that for a while. And then other ones came in, and you guys came in. And I just sort of said to him, I've sort of seen everything come along you guys are, you know, the most prolific one right now. And it's just so interesting to see it it, it, it all sort of come together. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what was your opinion of the watch podcast space when you guys got started? I think we got started just in time. So I think things like our time, which was kind of like the OG, as you see, as you say, of podcasts, was I had I think you probably were intermittent just as we were starting or it was perhaps just your colleague that was doing it by himself and we came along the other ones that were out there who dinky were producing content but not massively regularly you had the gray nato that was doing bits and pieces but their focus was more than just watches and then some other uh, some other smaller players we came on just in time and then i think probably within six months of us starting, there were hundreds of podcasts. I mean, maybe not literally hundreds, but it felt like that. And then COVID happened and lockdown happened and everybody decided that what they really wanted to do for a living was record podcasts or make YouTube videos. So it then went from being dozens after our first six months to doubling, tripling. And they all, yeah, very few of them have actually stuck around that certainly no one has done what we've done, which is keep up consistently two episodes a week for quite as long as we have. And probably if we'd known how much effort it was going to take, we probably would have stuck to one episode a week. But uh, yeah, it's been good. The podcast space has exploded, not just in watch content, but in all sorts of things. And it is, I, I listen to loads and loads of watch content on our podcast. I think podcast is probably my main form of entertainment away from just watching the television, just driving. And uh, I live in a farm, so you're always outside doing things. So there's always plenty of, of space just to let other people into your ears. 
So, yeah, the, the space has somewhat exploded, I think, as the world returns to whatever normal is going to look like in 2021, 2022, then some of those podcasts will fade. And certainly a few that were going once a week have now gone to once a fortnight, and, and that trend seems to be continuing. It is a hard slog because the numbers you do on a podcast are not the same as the numbers you do in YouTube. I think a number of YouTubers who are getting 50, 100,000 views on their 10-minute YouTube video, when they realize they're getting a low percentage of that for doing an hour's worth of podcasting, I think we soon go, wait a minute, I'll just, I'll just stick to the video because... You know, YouTube's figured out how to monetize that. It's not quite as easy <laughs> in, in the podcast space. So I think that's, yeah, that's probably where, where it's up to at the moment. I think what's interesting, and I want to sort of point it out now, and I think a lot of audience members need to understand this, is that it doesn't matter what it is with watches, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, a magazine, whatever. It is fundamentally very, very challenging to monetize. And we can spend, I mean, honestly, a lot, a lot of time, maybe even too much time talking about this one topic. But the idea is there's this perception from the outside that because watches are expensive, the people in watch media um, somehow work with very large budgets and thus have you know big profits. And I guess I can see the logic in that, but the reality is, is that that's not the case. And the people in the space, and also goes for other sort of hobbyist things like cars and computers and things like that, tend to make money from what we call non-endemic advertisers. And these are advertisers that don't sell watches. They just care about the audience. Yeah. With, with watches, it's been a bit of a grind, meaning the advertising industry hasn't really caught up to sort of the value of the audience. With cars, they get it a little bit more, especially since cars are a little bit more mainstream and you know the, the numbers are bigger. But we exist within a space where only people like us, like Rick and Ricky, myself, and a handful of others that truly care about this topic will keep going with it because it is not a high revenue area, like at all. Yeah, and, and the problem is that if you look at it, uh, I'm trying to think who was it said it, effectively Rolex pay for the marketing budget of virtually every other watch brand because they advertise so much. Yeah, I said and that. And was you that said that, oh, there you go. See, yeah. see endearing myself with the host already by quoting back himself, <laughs> I, is that the one brand that doesn't engage with podcasts and YouTube is Rolex. So actually, you're kind of on a hiding to nothing because what we are dealing with in pure entertainment value is the marketing budgets of brands that actually don't spend that much money in marketing. The brands that do spend money in marketing don't engage very often with podcasts and YouTube videos. And so what that means is that, and this is why I think you see other blogs, et cetera, going down the retail route, so that rather than, you know, getting a percentage of the marketing spend, they can get a percentage of the sales spend. And so you have colleagues that will go unmentioned because I didn't check with you beforehand whether you wanted to mention them. But uh, you are there's, no, there's nothing you can't mention. I mean, I, I, have, I have a lot to say on it. Yeah, so, you know, Hodinki, uh, let's just name it and claim it, are what's retailers now? It's the simple no other opinion. You're absolutely right. And I want to give you a little bit of context and also expand upon what you're talking about. The first thing I want to say is that when a watch media company or organization, whatever, 
turns into a store, it's not because they want to, it's because they have to. The problem isn't that watch marketing doesn't work. In fact, it works extraordinarily well. Without marketing, this industry would just go poof and go away. The problem is these brands are, and, 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 and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to upset some people, and I'm sorry to say it, and I, I didn't want to say it for years and years and years, but they are afflicted with greed, extremely great greed. Um, uh, the perception of a lot of Swiss when it comes to doing business with them is, show us what money you can bring us. Show us what opportunities you can bring us. It's, it's not about where can we invest. It's what opportunities can you bring me. So there's this fundamental desire of not sharing and always wanting to capture as much as possible for themselves. It is not a particularly friendly way of doing business. And I challenge any of them to to say otherwise. What that means is that if you think of commerce like a stream, people like you and me, if we want to make money from this, we have to get money upstream. The way it's supposed to be is we help brands make money and then they share some of those profits back with us. They invest back in the media ecosystem. That's the healthy way of doing it. That's how it should be. And that's to a degree how it is in other industries where it makes sense. Think of like shoes and the types of marketing that that happens in the shoe world. But with watches, once they collect the money from the consumer in the form of, you know, a sold watch or something like that, the money never goes out again. So what watch media has to do is somehow collect that money from the consumer prior to any of it getting to the brands. So now we're actually competing with brands for consumer dollars, and that makes us competition. Now, to be a store kind of solves that problem. You're still doing the exact same thing, which is capturing money upstream, but you do it in a way of selling watches, which is nice and good. And the internet needs more good watch stores, but it also needs watch media. Yes, and it is the eternal debate about impartiality and all the rest of it. To a certain extent, I'm a bit kind of, I don't think anyone's really trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I don't really think there's some grand conspiracy there that, yeah, X, Y, and Z just gives good reviews on this just so as they can sell stuff. A lot of these... Wait, wait, back up, back here. Well, there's a conspiracy? Tell me, give me some context. No, I don't, I don't think there is a conspiracy. Well, the, the, the only reason that certain watch blogs review certain watches is to build reputation. There's some great big plan that's out there. That, yeah, we're going to take, we're going to talk about this watch, we're going to boost it, oh, and then we're going to sell it and we're going to sell vintage versions of it and all the rest of it. I don't think there's as much planning goes into it as everybody would like to think that there is. I think there is an extent to which... you got to know, I I don't go to events. I don't really (laughs) spend a lot of time. Well, I haven't in a while. I love going to events. Well, I went to a Breitling event last night, but that was the first one in a long time. And Mm -hmm. I don't... I don't spend nearly as much time as you and some other people on social media. So there's a conversation happening right now that I'm you know, probably blissfully unaware. So if you tell me some of the context, I can respond to it. So, I mean, the conversation is basically that anyone in watch media who then becomes a retailer is selling out and is no longer longer an honest arbiter of watch reviews. And I see where they're coming from, but I don't think that it's that well-planned to be some sort of cabal that decides to to push the image <laughs> of a certain watch. These guys aren't that organized, you know. Um, <laughs> Some I'm, of them. I'm, I, I'm going to agree, but also disagree with you. Okay, so you're going to do the I, old I, yeah, nothing. Well, okay, look, you're <laughs> right that 
this this industry is not nearly as organized as would require for there to be sort of a, a large scheme in play. Yes. But it is a sort of follow the leader industry where they don't ask a lot of questions about strategy. They're just like, oh, that's successful. I better do it. True. Now, when you are a retailer, like any other type of business, you have to be efficient. You know, you're a farmer, for example, and you yes. know that you can't spend a lot of time tending to fields or whatever that don't grow as much as others. So the natural tendency of any store is to focus most, if not all of your efforts on things that help you make money. Covering a watch that you don't sell does not help you make money. And not being entirely positive about something you sell probably prevents you from selling as many. So while no one has it in mind, sort of the natural gravitational pull of being a retailer is I focus on what I can sell and I want to be as optimistic about it as possible. Yes, I think there is a kind of large hand of guidance that just moves folks slowly towards what is successful. I don't think there's been some vast plan everyone sat down. I think the likes of Odinki have gone, oh, we've got an opportunity to sell stuff. So they sell stuff and they sell quite a lot of stuff. So they decide to sell more stuff and they do it quite well. So more people buy it. So they sell more stuff. And you know the where there is a conspiracy? Employ... Oh, go on, go on. Go, no, well, go on. No, tell me your conspiracy. I'm always okay, in for a there... conspiracy. This is not this is not what I want to spend our entire time talking about. So I'll just I'll say a few things because look, okay. I, we could spend an entire yeah, show Ariel, just talking Ariel, about Ariel, it. Ariel, you've never said a few things in your entire life, so let's just <laughs> let's just let's just draw a line under that and accept that you are going to now speak about this for longer than you. You have to understand. To my brain, it's quite brief. Okay. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So here's where the conspiracy really is. And it really exists in the sort of whole pre-order world, sold out, blah, blah, blah. This oh, is yeah. where there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Yes. I'll give you a common scenario. You know this, but maybe some of the audience members don't. A watch comes out, and it within hours, a couple of days, everything is sold out. You're like, wow, that's so popular. How did that happen? The next time that happens, I have to put my money down right away because I don't want to miss out. This is obviously a hot in-demand thing. What actually happens a lot of the time is that these watches are shown to people privately before there's ever a pre-order, and then only a few of them are still left for sale by the time that it is um, you know, able to be sold. So people, it's already deceptive because it's not starting for sale now. There's a lot of sales that happen beforehand. Plus, there's absolutely no way of verifying that something is sold out. It's more valuable to a retailer... Uh, or a brand to say something sold out quickly, especially if they plan on doing again, than actually selling them out quickly. There's no, there's no way of verifying. There's no way of auditing it. They can lie to you without any repercussions, and the incentive for them to lie is so high yeah. that you can simply not believe how everything sold out. My Zodiac watch that I just worked on after about a week or so did sell out. We're gonna make more. I don't so believe you. I think you're part of the conspiracy. <laughs> no, no. So here's the thing. I had it sold by retailers. There uh, was, it was completely transparent. You can go to the retailers that sold it and you can ask them. It's a distributed network. I didn't sell a single one of those watches. Yeah. It was the re it was Zodiac retailers that did it. And it was their enthusiasm because they pushed it to their mutual customer bases, which uh -huh. is why that happened. Okay, yep. so it does happen. These sellouts do happen, but that they happen every time with certain brands and certain retailers, you should look very skeptically upon that. Yes, uh, one uh, that sprung to mind was the Omega 
50th anniversary Apollo. So there was a watch. Now, they made 6,969 of them for the 50th <laughs> anniversary. And, you know, all sold out, you know, big demand, da 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 And yet, see if you can... Or is this? Well, exactly. See if you keep a close eye on social media. You know, somebody posts last week, oh, I went in. Oh, and they had one. Yeah, of course they had one. They never sold 6,969 <laughs> of them. And I don't know whether, and you know this better than I, I will, that brands that do large number limited editions as to how many of them they ever actually make all of the watches that they say they're going to make. Because there's no way in the case of a brand like Omega that they actually made nearly 7,000 of these watches and sat them in a corner and just waited for them to sell. They made them in batches. So when the demand dies off, yes, if somebody's asking for one, they'll maybe keep trickling them in. But I think with a large number of brands, and actually especially some of the really high-end stuff, which is also low volume, when they say, we're only making 10 of these Breggies or Piaget's or whatever they are. And I'm like, did they ever make more than just the one that they issued to the press to see? Let me tell you, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story, because you're, you're absolutely correct that this, is, this happens a lot. Um, Politically speaking, I don't want to call out uh, particular brands and things like that, but I'm going to tell you a story. Uh-huh. And this happened before these internet sales. I saw this a couple, not, not, too, not too many years ago. I was at a store and the store was having like an event where there were certain brand reps there. So there'd basically be a brand rep at a third-party retailer helping to sell. This was a common thing. So there was a particular limited edition watch. And well, here's what would happen. And I, would, I was actually watching this happen because I was there for, for a number of hours. A customer would come in ask to see it, the salesperson was like, oh, well, we have one left, but, but, but this person was maybe going to buy it, but they're, they're sort of on the fence. Well, I can at least show it to you. Mm-hmm. They'd show it to the watch to them. they do a little song and dance. They were basically making it clear that this was the last one they had and it was sort of taken. And it, it, but the goal was they were explaining to them it was the last one. Um, the person often purchased it, but when they didn't, it didn't matter. They kept telling everybody, and I saw like five or six people the exact same story. So they told five <laughs> or six people that it was the last watch when they had sold some of them. So it was a flat out lie. So this strategy yeah. has been in place in watch industry, watch sales for a number of years in the retail environment. Translating it online is, is, is not just sort of um, predictable, it's probably expected. Mm. Consumers need to recognize that when they see something is sold out, just run the other way. Because either it really is, or someone's trying to screw you over. Yes. And, yeah, it's just, fundamentally, it's just disappointing. (laughs) There's so much good stuff out there at all sorts of price points to actually obsess over just the stuff that's sold out, that is the thing everybody wants, it's just disappointing when there's that much else out in the watch world and actually in the world in general. Look, uh, it's it's like dating, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're out, especially in an environment with a lot of other people and stuff like that, and we will obsess over that mate, which we find, you know, most superficially attractive. Maybe when we get to know them, we'll be like, oh, there's other reasons to like you, even if you're not 
superficially the best, but that's what happens on like Instagram. People are like superficially dating watches and all they do is like, oh, that's in demand. Uh, it must be hot. I guess I better run after it as well. There's just, it's, it's, it's like consumer laziness. No one is really sitting there making a decision in a vacuum. And that's why I find that the actual social component of social media with watches is so dangerous because mm. you actually shouldn't be minding yourself with other people's opinions about a watch. Like when you see a new watch, you should literally have no other opinion than your own about its aesthetic quality. No other opinion. And this is also the other trouble, which is it takes you down a route of trying to do things that you're really not an expert at. So you see something that's uh, selling out fast and uh, is going online for a markup over the retail price. And then suddenly you find yourself trying to like be a watch retailer or a flipper. And it's like, this is just so dangerous. Uh, that, just ignore, ignore the yeah, compulsion. Yeah, That's what it, I tell it, people, it, just yes, ignore the compulsion. Uh, and it gets a lot of people into a lot of trouble, a lot more people than I suspect would confess that it's got them into trouble just trying to become <laughs> a watch flipper because it's like a hobby. Oh, it's a hobby that I can I make some money at? Oh, if I just queue up for this limited edition run that's going to launch at one minute past midnight uh, Eastern Standard Time and get one, I can stick it on eBay. I'll, I'll never actually have to take ownership of the watch. I can just move uh, it on. It sounds like you're speaking from some personal uh, experience. No, no, to be honest, eh... I was speaking from personal experience. I've never done no, this. I've never no, done it. It's okay no, if you did. Not yet. I mean, I've had stuff that I've thought I have bought because I'm not going to keep it forever. And I'm aware of how much it might be worth in the future. I think there's a difference between determining yourself to sell for a profit. It's like day traders. You know, there's a reason why they advertise day trading apps on daytime television because it's to people who are like susceptible sitting at home going oh i can just make a quick spin as opposed to a guy it's like it's like it's the same guy that's being a, a gambling it's a gambling it's a gambling thing who's gone and done a maths degree and become an actual quant in the in wall street and i don't know about in in scotland but in england i know that online gambling addiction is a serious problem right now yeah it's, it's similar in both uh countries both countries would have a a similar disposition to gambling, uh, especially in sport, because I think in this in the states you've got some strange rules about gambling for such a capitalist country. Oh yeah, there's, super there's, weird rules. There's some really weird rules about gambling in the states. I don't fully understand them, but in the UK you can basically gamble on anything with anybody, so long as you're not inside the thing you're gambling on. So, for example, footballers can't bet on other football matches. Uh, not just not ones that they're not in, but anything, uh, any form of insight or knowledge uh, that's banned. But I think in the stage you've got really strange rules about. I could spend an entire hour talking about this. Oh my gosh! I, I don't really know. I mean, it is a it is a very peculiarly American thing, at least from the observations from this side of the pond, that your whole sports franchises gambling for a country that's just known for, you know. Winner takes all, uh, you know, whoever puts up the most money wins. To have this kind of strange socialist thing that goes across your sports networks is a bit odd to us, whereas we're the other way around. We've got all the socialism in government, but complete anarchy in sport. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I'll, I'll give you just sort of a really quick rundown of what our, 
our philosophies about it. It's, 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 it's a quite a contradictory thing, but I think you'll understand it. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, sort of the, the, the sort of really pure puritanical uh, part of the, the foundation of America stipulated that you should invest your money wisely. And the yeah. idea was that they want you to spend it on real things like jobs and stuff like that. Um, things like gambling and, and speculation had ruined um, a lot of, of economies. Arguably, it's a major problem in America today because of, like you said, uh, equities trading. But what happens is people stop spending on, quote, risky businesses and just want to invest in other money. So money stops actually working for the people. And then you have this giant disparity between the rich people who have the money to invest and the poor people who, who never have any investment coming going to them because the rich are just investing in other rich people. And that's why yes. the rich people get richer. Yeah. So that's And so America recognized that gambling... Uh, is something that is you know should be frowned upon, and also remember this is a time where a lot of things that were considered addictive were you know were, were banned. So gambling was thrown sort of in the same category as uh, uh, you know other undesirable behavior. It wasn't seen as an economic thing; it was seen as like a, a mental health thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but here's the weird thing: gambling, for the most part, is outlawed, but we fully support the lottery. Okay. Now the lottery is state run and the money actually goes to a lot of good things like education and stuff like that. But the lottery serves a really important part of uh, what I call the American dream, the true American dream. And the true American dream is that anybody, no matter how you were born or what your skills are, with some dumb luck and some work can be exceptionally wealthy far beyond uh, how they, they grew up. So you can jump super high in the socioeconomic um, sort of stratosphere. That has to be an ability of the American life. And, and, the, and the lottery is a ritualistic manifestation thereof. Right. Any schmuck who gets lucky can get so much wealthier than his neighbors and his friends and his family. And without this, this potential carrot at the end of the stick, most Americans wouldn't get up and work hard each day. It's the idea that they can get lucky and strike it rich, and this can happen to anyone, which fuels this American effort. Now, there's a lot of things screwing it up today because there is a real lack of opportunity, but things like the lottery and having some gambling are there to promote this idea that's part of the important part of the American psyche is that you can get, you know, unfairly wealthy tomorrow and you don't really have to do too much for that. So does that make sense? Yeah, then you can buy all the watches. Yeah, and so again, everyone <laughs> dreams of being that, that guy or that girl that is just so much wealthier than the people you grew up with. And it's not only in America, but like every American, like this is part of their their fundamental way of looking at the world. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different here. It's just that we have slightly different sensibilities, uh, particularly in Scotland in terms of wealth. And the opportunity is different. I mean, there is no New York City or equivalent in Scotland. You know, you can go to London and feel like you're in a completely different world in terms of wealth and status than you would in pretty much anywhere in Scotland. Uh, it's not that we're all kind of running around in kilts, uh, shooting haggis, but it's just a different country. Uh, it does not have... And the history of the country and the mistakes the country's made over the years... Financially, you know, we were part of that uh, system of speculation uh, by investing in the colonies, as we used to call them, uh, that got us into so much trouble as a, as a country back in the day. <laughs> so uh, without giving, giving you guys a history lesson about the Darien project, it's always worth a wee, a wee read. But uh, yeah, so I don't know how any of this relates to watches, but it's a fun conversation. 
So earlier I was talking to Jeff Staple, um, who's a very well-regarded uh, founder of, of Staple Pigeon and done a lot of stuff. With, you've heard of Hype Beast? Yes, I have. So he's part of that whole thing that gets really popular. And he's, he's right. very well accomplished, very smart guy. And, you know, we were talking about watch collecting being this thing which is not really accessible for everyone. You have to have a certain level of culture. You have to have a certain level of experience. Um, you have to have, you know, a lot of times you have to have traveled. Sort of the, the, the barrier to entry to get being into watches, and of course there's a financial component, means it's not open to everyone. So to be sort of in the club of, of watch lovers and enthusiasts means that you probably have hit a bunch of, you know, other interesting things. And so I, th I think that's that a lot of people around the world are like, why are watches a thing? Why are all these celebrities and politicians and, you know, generally intelligent people like into watches? And so I guess through these interviews, I try to explain that. I try to sort of show who are these people that design watches, that buy watches, that talk about watches, you know? Mm. And actually, I think that's what, if I was to make a prediction then I think what we're seeing in the watch world is it starting to become mainstream. So if you look at the car world, then you have lots of people that know a lot about cars that they will never, ever own. Okay? They will never even get to touch. They maybe will never see right. other than a magazine. But they and they know all the stats. They, they know, know all the stats. stats. They listen to all the media. They watch all the media. They buy the magazines. They engage with the hobby on purely a media level and we'll maybe go to a car show every so often. I think what we've got in the watch world at the moment is most people who are engaged in the watch world, you would define as watch collectors of some way, shape or form. But I think what you're seeing with the likes of what you guys do at Bog to Watch, Odinke, some of the other bigger blogs uh, elsewhere in the world, and the way that watch brands are now dealing with their... Uh, celebrity endorsement people is that it is starting to go mainstream, especially as a result possibly of being locked up uh, during the COVID crisis for so long for so many people. They have just been sitting at their desks, able to surf the internet in a way they perhaps would not have been able to do at work. And one thing's led to another and they've become interested in it. Because the one thing I will say to anybody <laughs> Anybody that I've ever spoken to about watches has, from a position where they know nothing, at the end of the conversation has always gone, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I, And then if you see them three or four weeks later, they'll suddenly be speaking to you about watches that they've seen. It appears to be a hobby that is really easy to gain a little bit of knowledge to be able to then engage with someone who knows a lot more, a bit like cars, because everybody drives a car, everybody knows how to tell the time. And I think what we're seeing in the watch world, is it going more mainstream? And I think you're seeing that reflected in the way that the media that would have been dedicated to just talking to the geeks about watches are now branching out into other aspects of lifestyle, into maybe not just viewing everything and every article as being about a deep dive into some complication or design ethic or whatever it might be. So I think over the next two or three years, watch collecting, because you don't talk about car collectors. There are very few people, there's probably less people that collect cars in any serious way than collect watches. They're in too the big. Sense that they're too big. 
they're much more expensive than your average. Uh, sorry, my. They're much more expensive than your average. So I'll say that again. They're much more expensive than your average watch. You know, you could get a good watch collection just by buying some really nice limited edition Swatch watches. But there's no equivalent in the car world. And what I think you're seeing is humans have this desire to collect things, to be knowledgeable about stuff, to exchange information. And I think that's what you're starting to see sneak through in the watch world, even in things like, okay, so he's got a bit of dog's abuse for it, the whole AP and Marvel thing, uh, just without going into too much detail. I'm, but, I'm so done talking about that topic. Yeah, but, 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 what, but what you can see is that is fundamentally about a watch brand moving, whether you view it sensible or just outlandish, into real day-to-day cultural media stuff. Because you're going to have people who are fans of Marvel, they will never see a Black Panther Royal Oak, whatever it was called, Turbion. They will have zero appreciation for whether it is actually a good watch, a bad watch, an overpriced watch, or any of the story behind the watch. What they will know is, hey, there's this watch. It's quite cool because it's associated with this other thing that I find quite cool, and therefore I'll engage with this brand. I'm never going to own an AP because I'm never going to have enough money to buy one. But just in the same way as I'm never going to have enough money to buy a Ferrari, I'll support the Ferrari F1 team and I'll buy the hat and I'll buy the cap. Uh, I say hat and a cap, same thing, but you know what I mean? I'll buy the the product or the merchandise because I can't actually afford the product. I think what you'll see will happen as this progresses is watch brands will start to produce stuff that is not specifically about watches. It's specifically about engaging the community that's well down the line, and a bit like how you were talking about the American Dream, is you know if they sell a million AP or Panerai caps to kids in the street, one or two of them will win the lottery, will get the good degree, the good job, found the company, and then they'll buy the watch. So I think what you're seeing for a lot of these brands is them building far earlier what their brand is about with an audience that will come along in 10, 15, 20 years. Rick, you've said many, many things to respond to. I have to sort of pick and shoot here. <laughs> I, mean, I, have get, I have to get them all out of one because I know that when I let you start talking, <laughs> I, I'm going to need to wait five minutes for Michael. I, I'm so, I, do, I, I hate looking as though I'm being rude and not letting people so I just <laughs> I, There's a lot in there. It's good that I communicate for a living or else I'd go crazy. Um, <laughs> You know, the last thing you're referring to is such an important point because it's it's the strategies brands have to appeal to children or people when they're younger. You know, it used to be that you got into watches when you're young because you had to get a watch and you definitely knew that your watch sucked and that these other expensive watches are better and you look forward to owning one. These days, you don't need these things. And so there's no automatic way you get into watches when you grow up unless watches are associated with things you like. Mm. Audemars Piguet and Black Panther, super weird to me. I don't know how many people are ever going to really learn about that, but, you know, why not? These are all strategies to be relevant to young people today. And, again, there's no easy way of doing it because wearing an expensive watch is a mature person's sport. And so it's it's there's no science behind it. They just keep trying all these different ways. I remember, you know, uh, 12, 13 years ago, Hublot – had invested a little bit of money in advertising within this virtual world called Second Life, which was 
Um, yes. Kind of like a precursor to a massively multiplayer online game. That's still and going. You're, the second life I don't still know. exists. I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, but Hublot was in it, and you could you could buy an Hublot watch and go into Hublot Boutique uh, through your avatar in the game, and your character <laughs> can wear this, and you could you could have a virtual Hublot. And again, it was. I love that Hublot did it because it probably wasn't that expensive for them, just some programming and stuff like that. You know, just pay some agency to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were playing that game, you think there was going to be Rolex in there? Hell no. Mm -hmm. The only luxury watch you were going to know about was Hublot. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that still remember Hublot. And when they ever get the money, they'll be like, let me go see what's going on with Hublot. I mean, think about, you talk about cars. Like you ask like a 10-year-old kid with Ferraris and they all know. Yes, and I think you're right. I think actually Hublot is probably the brand and it's probably got as much to do with the brand owner at the time that are actually so far ahead of the curve on this. Because to most watch snobs, Hublot is not a brand to be appreciated. Okay? For various reasons, not most of them snobbery and not very good because they do make good watches. There's it's real, a good brand. Oh, it's a Every good brand. brand makes dumb stuff yeah. it makes weird marketing moves yeah. but your average hublot is a is a very halfway decent if not exceptional watch absolutely but they would be i mean they would be considered a small brand but i'll bet you if you line up brands that people under 25 would recognize if you said what is this you know you say rolex is a watch brand i'll bet you a disproportionate number in comparison to the size of the business and the number of watches themselves would be able to identify Hublot as a watch brand and a luxury watch brand at that than Tudor or Cartier or, I don't know, Parmigiani, you know, even Patek. Let's, let's take it one step further. That one of those young people you're talking about has some money to buy a watch. Yeah. An other watch brand they probably know is Rolex. Yes. So they go to the Rolex store first because Rolex is more well-known. They can't buy anything. What do you mean? So can't buy it? They'll, not, they'll not even be allowed in because they'll be wearing trainers. So If, if not... that's how the Rolex stores are there, then it is stopping. <laughs> You're right. Um, and so that Hublot, you know, if Hublot has their, you know, their crap together and they basically make sure that they continue to market and message this person – once that person gets rejected by Rolex, they're going to be, screw Rolex, I'm going to give my money to someone else. So Hublot, if they continue that entire thing up until the person's ready to buy a watch, which in a lot of instances they do, they can benefit. And, and that's a, I think that's a very strong – if 100 brands have the same, same strategy, not as easy. Yes. But you know, with what Hublot is built and some other brands like them, such a lot, such a great amount of opportunities. Yeah, I mean, they're one of the few brands that has actually invested. And it's really bizarre when you think about it, that one of the few brands that's invested in the world's most popular sport, which is football. And I mean, soccer to everyone that's listening. So Hublot sponsor all the referees, a lot of the players, et cetera, et cetera. They're everywhere. European Championships is on just now. They're all wearing watches that are from 2020 due to reasons. But uh, that aside, <laughs> uh, they're investing in a sport which is, I suppose you would view as being the everyman sport, as opposed to investing in golf, an expensive sport, sailing, an expensive sport, horse riding, a really expensive sport. And I should know, uh, they're actually investing in advertising 
much more broadly and there's no doubt that has an impact on their bottom line and the other key thing people have got is they've got stock they actually make watches that people can buy and go into a shop and actually see and try on unlike so many others whereby you might see it in a magazine but you'll never see one at try on i want to i want to comment on what you said because i think it's really interesting you were talking about like horse racing or boating and these various types of very expensive events where if you advertise there you're probably not going to reach a lot of young people the, the the reality is that those events are smart because that's where people who can actually buy these things go and they love it when they're wearing the Rolex and there's the Rolex sign at, at, at the events. Like wealthy people love this so much. It's, it's, it's so it's always smart to advertise there. But one of the things brands are guilty of is what I call aspirational marketing. They'll market to a group of people who isn't actually buying their watches and long jeans is actually a very good example where if you do research on who's buying long jeans, it's not people that go to uh, horse racing events, yep. but that's where so much of their marketing goes. Yep. So that also happens. Yes. Uh, and I don't know to what extent the luxury industry is slowly figuring this out. On the one hand, I always think about the watch industry as being super mature. It's been around for hundreds of years. They should have had their act together by now. And then sometimes I think, actually, they really are still learning on the fly about what actually works and about what their next move should be. And the other thing you've got to take into account is us sitting in our kind of Western Hemisphere bubble really don't understand just how culturally different watch purchasing is in South America, Southeast Asia, uh, China, the Middle East. You know, whereas a Ferrari is a Ferrari everywhere in the world, a two-tone D-date is viewed entirely different. Anyway, a two-tone C-dweller would be viewed entirely differently in the Western Hemisphere than in Southeast Asia or China or Japan. Uh, There is such a cultural heritage of what's desirable in watches that differs from continent to continent in a way that car culture, even sneaker culture, stuff like that doesn't, which is quite weird that we haven't kind of become this homogenous shopping entity of humanity throughout the world of luxury watches in the way that we have cars. Well, Well, I think it's surprising because in cars, a car that's desirable in the States is generally considered a car that's desirable in South Africa or New Zealand or Japan, there's not a lot of difference. It's fa- I would say it's fairly homogenous. Whereas you can really identify, you know, if you were to if you were to put a ten watch collection, blind, you know, a blind test in front of you, five ten watch collections, one from each continent, or one from America, one from UK, Europe, Japan, China, I reckon you'd stand a pretty decent chance of being able to guess which collection was from which continent. I don't know. I think it'd be a fascinating thing to try. I think we should, try that. Um, I think we should video that, Ariel, and try that because I would be interested to see whether you could tell culturally where a watch collection was from. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blogged Watch Store. 
Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the blog to watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Well, let's talk about Scotland. Could you describe a typical Scottish taste in watches? Maybe not particular watches, but things about watches or design features. You know, what, what is Scottish watch taste? I don't know. What is it? What's particularly, I don't think I could say there's a particularly Scottish, I think there's probably a particularly UK watch taste. I think there is still a lot of love for dress watches that perhaps there isn't elsewhere in the world. Because okay. up until COVID, there was still a pretty, you know, suit and tie office basis. You know, it wasn't. Dress Down Friday was still Dress Down Friday. It wasn't Dress Down the whole of the week like it would be in New York or Seattle or somewhere or San Francisco. Is that still the case? Is this a more formal society still? I would say pre-COVID, yes, it would certainly be more formal than uh, the US or Australia. And I think if I think of the accountants and the bankers and insurance guys that I know that I wouldn't consider watch geeks, then I think you would see them wearing stainless steel, platinum, gold, day dates, date just, that kind of thing. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen an adventurous watch being worn by someone I knew didn't know about watches. I think... An adventurous watch? Yeah, what would it, be like a sports watch? Just a sports watch. I, I can't think of a tight... I cannot honestly think of ever seeing someone wearing a Daytona or a Submariner, you know, fairly regular watches, so to speak, who weren't watch guys, uh, who didn't know something about them. So the guy wearing a suit going to work for the insurance company or be a merchant banker is not wearing a Daytona just because he liked it. He's wearing a Daytona because he knows something about it, possibly, and he's also got three or four other things back in the house. But the one watch guy is still wearing the, the Rolexes of the world. So if you took just a, a random assortment of men off the street, uh, you know, in Edinburgh or, or, or Glasgow or something like that, and how many of, let's say, you know, 10 guys would be into watches? Oh, uh, you think? of 10 average guys, probably none of them. Okay, <laughs> so not even guess. one in 10. Not I even don't even think one in 10. Depends on how you ask the question, of course. But if, if you ask the question by actually asking them to name, you know, three watch brands beginning with P, I don't think they'd be able to do it. Uh, so I think zero out of 10 from that. As to people who would like luxury stuff and be into it if you spoke to them for a bit yeah a couple out of ten probably i mean seven out of ten of them would be wearing apple watches probably okay uh, one would be wearing a g-shock of some description or uh you know uh 
uh, a Casio or uh, a Citizen, something like that, and one, the rest would probably not be wearing watches. I mean, the other thing you've got to remember about Scotland is that, generally speaking, we're dressed up in raincoats, so it's not very often you get to see people's wrists. Ah. It's not like we're walking down in shorts and T-shirts whereby you can admire generally what's going on and have appreciation of, of what everybody's doing. It's not like California. So most folk are in jumpers, so seeing what they're wearing is few and far between. But uh, I don't... How strong is the middle class? Uh, yeah, there's a strong middle class in Scotland. Yeah, there's a strong kind of... I, I think within the middle class, people would be okay with spending three or £4,000 on a watch as a special okay. gift, as an anniversary or a wedding gift or special birthday. So, yeah, right. there's plenty. We, you know, we invented banking over here in Scotland. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's plenty, there's plenty of money, especially in the east in Edinburgh, plenty of old family money in Scotland as well, biggest shooting estates and all that kind of bobbins. So plenty of that. So there is a middle class. There are lots and lots of jewellers. We, we do not have to go far anywhere in any big city in Scotland and find half, half a dozen household names selling tag hoyers and Tudors and Brightlings. Uh, and I would say tag is probably still the staple non-Rolex watch huh. uh, within okay. Scotland. They, they would be who you would see in the luxury side in the kind of spending more than a £1,000 on a watch. You'd probably see more tag hoyer. ADs and you know fundamentally in the window than you would anything else. I would say probably of big brands. I would say Breitling would be next up. So I want to talk about farming, okay, um, and 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 farmers' watches and things like that because <laughs> I don't know a lot about farming. I've always sort of romanticized, you know, the 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 work of a farmer, especially a modern farmer. Mm-hmm. I don't really. It seems to be a high profit enterprise if you do it right. But I've been watching. Jeremy Clarkson's The Farming Thing right now, which okay. I, I actually find quite interesting. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I'm interested in cultivators and seeds, yes. and I'm just, I'm interested in it. Yes. Anyhow, farmers <laughs> seem to also be like gearheads. You know, you got to be in yes. your gear and your stuff. So yes. the, the farmer would be like the right profile of, of uh-huh. a watch person, but I'm sure they have their own taste. So like, what's a... <laughs> What's, what's farmers, well, I, farmers' taste in fine washes? I should confess that I am probably closer to the Jeremy Clarkson image of a farmer than I am to the farmer image of a farmer. I am similar to Mr. Clarkson in that I too have a Lamborghini tractor and a class tractor. Which, nice. Uh, my Lamborghini is slightly more practical than his. Uh, and I don't actually, while I live on a farm and we have uh, some, some acreage, I actually keep horses. So there's a very limited amount of actual farming that goes on here. If but, you keep animals in America, yeah, you're still a farmer. Yeah, okay? but it's all the key thing is guy. it doesn't stop me buying all the toys. So I too. Right. So yes, farmers are fundamentally gearheads. And the key thing about most farmers, I would exclude myself from this, is that they're also incredibly practical and can turn their hand to fixing anything that they happen to find in a hedgerow somewhere and make a practical oh, cool. use of it. So yes, I have a number of rust buckets and uh, top-end stuff here on the farm. The local farmer to me, like my immediate next-door neighbour, wears a Rolex Millgouse. I don't know if he okay. understands that he wears a Rolex Millgouse or if that's just the one that you like that you saw in the shop. I've never actually spoken to him about it. 
But okay. uh, yeah, so the immediate big acreage farmer that's next to me, he's a milgauss wearer. Uh, I, for farming, will wear uh, either nothing or will wear my Panerai. Uh, I find Are there pan- complications that make sense for a farmer? Oh, I, I think equation of time is probably... <laughs> no, I don't know. Is there a, no, is there a, is don't there a, say that. That's a useless there, one. It's yeah, never useful. It's, is, there, is there a farming... I mean, you could go down the kind of sunset sunrise sunset indicator what was okay. the, what's the brand uh not company what a, lot, they a lot of brands have those no what's the there's a uh, one that did one recently that was a self-setting one oh, the went, crayon the crayon watch that's the one so in scotland where the so at the moment it will be daylight like you wouldn't need your headlights on in the car you'd be able to work outside probably till about 10 30 tonight and it'll get light here at about 4.30 tomorrow morning. And then wow. in the winter, it'll get daylight at about half eight in the morning and dark at about half past three. <laughs> so, half past three? Yeah, Ooh. so a sunrise, sunset indicator, that's probably about the most useful thing so you could know okay. whether you need to open or close your curtains to keep the daylight. I, just, I had no idea if it was like pilot watches or dive watches or like no, I mean, something, water, something waterproof for farming is definitely a necessity. Right. Uh, I mean, the most practical thing for farming would actually be something that you can also use either as a hammer or a crowbar because <laughs> when you're out in a field and something goes wrong, you tend to find that you can solve most things with a hammer or a crowbar. So maybe some sort of tactical clasp on a watch, if someone could design me that, that I could also use to hit things. So it would be a G-Shock. You, you actually think someone's going to turn a wristwatch into something as powerful as a crowbar? I, 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 a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I had, uh-huh. a, would it be a Casio? I've still got one. It's the robot face Casio. Uh, from like 1980-something or other. And it okay. had a clasp on it that actually you could use to open tins of paint and bottles. I dare say you weren't supposed to, but it was able to be used for that back in the okay, day. They've done, they've done bottle openers, yeah. but I mean, that's... That's like a microscopic version <laughs> of a, a crowbar. I mean, just yeah, let's be yeah. honest here. Yeah, true. True fact. I, be, I, don't, I think one of those solid gold G-Shocks, I'd probably do it. A platinum one, something nice and heavy. Okay, they have they have the gold G-Shock. Mm-hmm. It's quite expensive. Yeah, 70 grand. Yours for a hammer. It's, it's more. I think it's like 80 grand. Is it? Or like Is that. That, oh, I'm, not, I'm definitely not buying it then if it's 80 grand. 70 grand. It's a lot a team, of money. But 80 grand, I'm out. <laughs> Here, here's the thing, and, and tell me if you can do this, uh-huh. because... Some people say that, like, why would you ever buy gold? Because, you know, you have gold plating and stuff like that. I can still visually tell the difference. I think gold looks a certain way, which is really hard to replicate. Yes. And I think it's also coming back in quite a big way. I think the, you know, Far East, Middle East has really brought gold watches and stuff back into the forefront because they're big fans out there. And I think you're seeing that drifting back into Europe. I've certainly seen more people wearing and more micro brands producing, whether it's DLC coated or not, it looks gold, uh, gold looking. So I think that's probably a fashion that's on its way back. And I don't think that'd be any I don't think that'd be a bad thing to be honest. They are nice. There is something about an old 
gold watch. I've got a Vulcane watch from 19 umpty ump, which is gold. And it's just something really nice. Is it, is it a cricket? It was one of those vibrating cricket. watches? Yeah, yeah, it's a cricket. Uh, an original Which is funny because like gold is like the worst material for that. Yeah, I know it is, it is a bit weird. I'm not sure that the quality of the gold is really going to notice. It's probably closer to the nine carat than the eighteen carat, I suspect. Uh, but uh, yeah, no Vulcan crickets. I'm a big fan of those watches. Actually, they're very cool. Let's I uh, I I want to have more gold watches in my future. Okay, so let's let's talk about one more question, and okay. then we're we're out of time. Yeah, this is the question in. In the podcasting you've done about mm-hmm. watches, with Scottish watches, mm-hmm. you've had a lot of conversations with people. You've done a lot of interviews. What are some of the weirder things you've learned about people, watches, watch industry? Like, what are some of the things you heard or the conversation that just kind of shocked you or just super oh, weird? Oh, wow. I, I mean, things I've learned as I've gone along is that I suppose I'm keeping an eye out for now that my eyes have been opened. The big one is the auction world. I'm like, nah, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Again, that I've been warning people about for how many years now? (laughs) Exactly. So I I suppose I've heard stories now, most of which we've never broadcast, that uh, in in the auction world makes me think, yeah, what's really going on there? Other things is the number of watch brands that release stuff and then you never hear from it again. I can think of two in particular big brands that made two watches basically hyped up and then disappeared overnight, never to be spoken of again. And oh, wait, so they, they launched the watch, yeah. but it never it never like was released. Never really appeared. So Zenith with the inventor and okay. Tag Heuer with the what did they call it? The ISO is an isograph? No, it wasn't isograph. Oh, the micrograph or something no, like that? No, no, it was, it was this one with the silicon. Uh, was it the girder? No, what was it called? I'm going to need to... No, they made that one. I'm going to need to... Oh, the isograph. You're talking about isograph. What, was, that the iso- was that what it was called? The isograph. isograph. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not silicon. It's not silicon. Yeah, the, the Otavia isograph, which was launched in a spectacular style. I think three made it to the shop and then it just disappeared and they launched something else to replace it. And yeah, just being, I know just, why. I just, well, exactly. They used we've, the talked it, we've talked about why. Yeah, so, so we, uh, but the, so the number of watch brands, and to be fair, it's not a criticism. It's half a criticism. It's good that people will let things go and try stuff. It'd be nice if they check that it worked first, but it's nice that they're having a go. And you think even of things like, uh, so you get tagged Zenith. There was one other recently. It escapes me. You need to edit it out because I can't remember. But okay, oh, so wa- watch auctions. So uh, watch watch out for them. A lot of scammy. A lot of scammy, shady stuff going on. Yeah, brands that launch stuff that you know that do big press re- releases and then you just never see the watch. Uh, yeah. Phantomware. Yeah. Phantomware. Absolutely. We gave we gave the Zenith the Vaporware award two years in a row. I think uh, for that. <laughs> So they, look, they tried. It's just they, they couldn't get it to work. It's yeah. just that simple. They couldn't get it to work. And I don't and, and so I'm mean, so it's good that they do try stuff like that. Actually, I tell you who I was remember was Tudor with the Black Bay. So things like that, the Black Bay GNT that they launched, that quite clearly the date didn't work properly and there was a flaw. But rather than just fess up to it and say we've got a problem with recalling all of these, they instead extended the warranty on them. 
so that they could get them all back. Uh, so watch brands that trend, I suppose, a call for transparency. We much prefer it when you're just straightforward and say, guys, we've got a problem here. Uh, bring it back in. So suppose... So all, all of these stories revolve around people lying, essentially. Well, I, I, no, <laughs> I don't think it's quite as strong as that, mainly because I'd rather they sued you than sued me. But uh, yeah, certainly two things would be watch auctions. What's that all about? Watch brands that launch things that never actually see the light of day. And then conversations we've had. I, I'm, I'm surprised by how many Scottish people there are in the watch world. Is, I know, right? Is, is one thing that's been a surprise as we've gone along. And who else, what else would I say was a highlight? Uh, I mean, we've had some great guests, some great conversations, so much stuff that we've just not been able to publish or issue. If we could, If we had the time to do a blooper reel, it would be the most popular podcast. You know what you do? do it for members only. Make a subscription thing, okay? And then make it for members only. Scottish watches after dark. Sure, call yeah, it yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so call it, be, call it behind the times. Behind the times. Well, I think I think that's a joint venture one for us both, Ari. I suspect you've got. Okay. I suspect you've got several reels. I, I think your editor, your editor doesn't tell you that you know every time there's a wee blooper, he just just puts it to one side. Just ready for that Christmas episode, so it's all sitting there waiting. But, uh, we've we've actually planned uh, something. I haven't launched it yet, but I just have to turn the key. I basically, you know, did all the tech work for it. Okay. Uh, a subscription model uh, for sort of a not not. It's not really about premium content, but other things. Yeah. Honestly, while the world is in pandemic mode, there's reasons why not to launch it. Like, yes. for example, a lot of it would involve events. Mm-hmm. I think people would pay. To go to events where there's members only, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, I think that's a, that's a very good um, incentive to be part of a subscription thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it is also a degree of community and special conversations. So yeah. what I think people want part of a club is to have conversations like this, mm-hmm. but it's just for club members. Yeah, I agree. Oh, the other thing I've learned about watches all along is the best way to take a good wrist shot is to wear a white shirt. That sorts out all the light problems. That's like one of those life hack things. So if ever you're taking a photograph of a wrist shot, wear a white shirt, it sorts out all the light, allegedly. What I do is I I will wear like tie-dye shirts just to make it harder on myself. (laughs) Get that rainbow detour effect. There's so many watches. You're like, what's that hint of purple? And it's like, because I just I won't wear the white shirt. Um, So what's so what's in store for you guys then? Let me, let me do what you normally do when we get you on our show, which is you start asking all the questions. So the final question is actually to you, Ariel. What's happening? Okay, but do I ask bad questions? No, you don't ask bad questions. Okay. But I know okay. your legal background. I, I'll bet you that... Did you actually practice law in a court? No, I was never into that. I was I was going to be a contract lawyer. That's right. what I was doing a lot. Like, you know, internet law, intellectual property. I, I wanted to work with people that wanted to do business together. That was what I was doing there. It was never about like, I want to be litigious in court and screw people yeah, yeah. over. Like that's so much negative energy. Because I'll bet that had you practiced in court, you would have been the person most often chastised by the judge for the old asked and answered query. 
of asking the question and then thinking, that's such a great question, I should really answer it myself. <laughs> so I am going to ask you a question. Out of all the objections asked and answered, that's a light one, you know? Oh, no, no, it is a light one. Listen, it's a good one. It's a fun one. It's a fun one. Uh, you know, you shouldn't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Okay, so you, uh, you so have you have a few minutes. Ask I'll, me some I'll questions. You, well, I just what's happening with the blog to watch? Where you've obviously come back. You're doing the podcast. The podcast is going well. You're plowing along. A blog to watch is obviously a slightly different voice from a number of the other big blogs that are out there in terms of you know it's very much shaped by your personality very much focused on what you want to do. You're not being driven by some corporate investors in the background unless you want to confess oh, now that LVMH Group are a big investor in your business. So how do you see, as everybody else is developing in a particular direction, how do you see yourself continuing to plow what is your own furrow to emphasize the farming metaphor? In... Was it 2018 or 2019? I was in Switzerland and I went, I went to have dinner with Jean Claude Biver at his home. Name and Jean-Claude. no, I just he's a he was a respected person. He's yeah, part yeah. of the story, <laughs> and uh, I've known him for a while. And he's a smart guy. It's look, my relationship with most of these people are is weird, anyways. Mm-hmm. But you know, I know enough to ask him questions. And I explained to him the situation which was going on with the, the industry, just had no idea how to use media, even though it had huge value to them. And he himself, he was one of the people that understood the value of media. He got it so well. Yes. And so I said to him, because he knows how little they get it. So he could really sympathize with me. And I explained to him potential directions we could go in and things we could do and, and all these different options I had. And I just sort of wanted to lay out my the situation for him, my problem as I saw it, and thinking about what's the future of a blog to watch. Mr. Rivera, let me explain all this to you. What should I do? And he took the query very seriously. When I say that, this is a person that likes to answer questions with one sentence. Like his favorite <laughs> thing in the world to do is answer with one sentence. And, and that's it. That's all you get. You get the one sentence. <laughs> uh, and so he thought about it. And I didn't get too much more than the sentence. But the, the summation of what he said was just keep doing what you're doing. It's good. It has value. Uh, there will be ups and downs, but the best thing you can do is just keep doing what you're doing and remember why you're doing it and remember the you know the goals that you said you have to me now, your values, your scruples and things like that. Yeah. It's unfortunate that they won't always appreciate it, but it's really needed in the community. And as long as you're needed, you know, good will come of it. You'll you'll figure out what to do. And and I, I don't know what I wanted him to say, but I I I take that to heart, probably because no one has given me any better advice. You know, I'm not saying he's perfect, everything he says, but he really thought about it. And he he tends to have a good finger on the pulse. That's why he's always been good at things, because he knows what people want. He knows what's going on in people's minds, and he has a good sense of these things. Mm. And so I continue today fo- to follow Bever's advice and think about making decisions that always follow our, our scruples, our values, our mission statement, whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. And that's what we continue to do. So, you know, when I, I want to do more collaborations with, with brands to make watches, but I don't want to sell them. Yes. I believe they should be sold by retailers. Right. Okay. So that's, that's something I'm going to be doing more of. Um, advertising really needs to be transparent. It's always been with us, but I am trying to set a trend and fighting a lot of battles. We still, to this day, from very major brands, say, yeah, 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 we'll pay for it. But does it have to say ad? <laughs> like, it, 
I mean, we, it's so often, it's ridiculous. They know it's illegal. Yes. It is against the law. Yeah. And they're like, but could you just break the law for us? You know? <laughs> could you do white, white wrestling on a white background just for us? <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like, no, no, I, I unfortunately won't because it feels bad and I could get in a lot of trouble. Uh, so this is, you know, this is an on, it's an ongoing battle. I think it's a battle that we're, we're, we're slowly winning, especially because the pandemic has forced everyone to go online. Yeah. And we have brands that basically do this. So like they come back like after sometimes years, like almost like a dog with a tail between his legs or whatever. And they're like, you know what? We worked with you one time and it wasn't exactly what we wanted. But then we worked with a bunch of others and it was even worse. And we realized <laughs> you really are the best one. You are the best of a bad bunch. <laughs> You know, I'm like, and the thing is, there. It just goes to what you said earlier in the conversation. Watch brand expectations of what they should get for marketing is just dumb. It's, yes. it's just ignorant. Absolutely. They think like five thousand dollars should get them like a hundred thousand dollars in value. They actually have to know, and they need to sell like one watch to pay for it. It's like, yeah, grip guys. Uh, yeah. You know, so their expectations are just are 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 they're preposterous. They yeah. don't know what to expect, and so it's it's working as a legitimate business in like a fantasy industry. <laughs> That's, I think that I think we need to set up a new a new website, Ariel, and call it exactly that'll be the strat line. Uh, <laughs> re, re, working in the real world in a fantasy business. Yeah, yeah. It's a total fantasy, you know, and that's why we love it. But like, it's 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 really drinking its own Kool Aid way too much. It's yes. been getting high on it for an awful long time, <laughs> and, it will, and it will no doubt continue to do so while we nibble at its use and uh, and, and call it out on a regular basis for doing so. But uh, yeah, that's... so so the the plan is, you know, I'll, I'll give you even some longer term plans. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sell the company. Yeah. What I would rather do if I was not running it, Mm -hmm. I would rather just delegate a board of directors, probably mostly comprised of the, of the top people here right now. And just say you run it and maybe I'll be a chairman and and make decisions here and there and Uh still write stuff. But I, I I want it to live on. I'm trying to build something that can live on as, as it is. I don't want it to be like my exit strategy is to sell it and kill it. Every exit strategy, which, which, which involves, the company being sold is a death sentence every time, 100% of the time. So that's not an exit strategy. That's like a, that's like a fun explosion. Like, look, we blew up our business. It's awesome. Uh, dear. No, 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 I think, I think you're exactly right. I think that is the problem as to, and it, it's, it shows just how immature blogging that's then developed into what we get, we all do still is because no one's really knows what happens next. Nobody really knows how to hand this off to another generation. Because you and I grew up with good magazines and they uh-huh. have value generation after generation. And it doesn't matter if it's in print in your hands or online. People want good magazines by enthusiasts for enthusiasts. This is as long as there's consumerism, yes. there will be value and need for this. But it's the handing it off from the original founder without the original founder, as you say, blowing the whole thing up in order to take as much and extract as much cash as as possible. Look, as long as there's a business model that can maintain, if I left, it would be to do something else. It wouldn't be to retire. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to like suck the company dry. So what would you do? Wasn't this, what would Ariel Adams be doing? (sighs) I mean, here's the thing. I'm a communication professional who can type really fast. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. So you know, so you tell me. Mail. I don't know. Are you working for the Russians sending junk email? Uh, that seems like it's like too high effort. I need to be able to like delegate a lot more. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. I know. I mean, I, I, who, who knows? I, I think the one thing that this all does kick up being this particular industry is there are always opportunities. It's just the question as to whether you want to take them. And that comes down really to how much money do you want? What's the kind of ethic you'll have by uh, what you actually want to do well, with your day? What I want to see is a consortium of consumers, people that buy watches, that want to be activists and want to have the stores they want, the retail experience they want, the magazines they want. Like, we should not be advertiser funded. We should be funded by the people we actually work for, which is consumers. Yes. Like, that's the practical thing. Um, you know, and yeah, we might just turn the turn the switch on to subscription service at one point and offer some more stuff. That's that's the plan. Uh, that might be what we do. Or there could be, like I said, a consortium of consumers that that create the environment they want, that fund the media they want, make tools. There's all kinds of tools like software developers, the things that you could do for the watch industry is nuts. Not freaking NFTs and blockchain. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, that, that junk. Yeah, going back to just the question you asked me about things I've learned. Yeah, the anyone, any watch brand that mentions blockchain or NFTs oh, is at God. It. Okay, just give them a receipt and some box and papers. It does the same thing. Look, the, the the technology of blockchain and watches has potential, but we're not there yet. And it's because each watch doesn't have a, a, a visual fingerprint. You can't take watches as they are right now and say, we're going to put 100 Submariners next to each other. And this system will identify them as a distinct, unique Submariner from all of the 100. We don't have the, nothing exists to do there. They're, they want to use powerful um, imaging technology. And I'm telling you, there's too much variation. And then someone scratches a bracelet, you've yeah. destroyed the fingerprint. Yeah, I use my right? bracelet as a hammer or a, or a crowbar. And it's yeah. Dial, dials age over time. So if the dial ages over time, it's technically has a different fingerprint. And I've talked to these imaging experts. I've been on the phone with them uh, and they're these like Ivy League people and they think they're all amazing. And I'm like, <laughs> it cannot be done with the technology. Like, oh, well, we're working on this algorithm. We're really, really excited about it. We're, we're really, you know, we really have a lot of faith in it and a lot of heart. I'm like, I, tell me some, give me some assurance that you have a system that works. Well, uh, we performed some tests. I'm like, you have not <laughs> taken 100 Submariners and, and compared them over a five-year period to see if the fingerprint sticks, have you? Uh, no. You know, so, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm going to get out my soapbox now. I just, I, there's so much crap right now going yeah. on, and the consumers, to get quality information, um, have to be comfortable paying for it, have to see this as a cost of the hobby, because ultimately you'll save a lot more money even if everybody spent thirty dollars a month, or fifty dollars, or even a hundred dollars a month on watch media collectively, that will create a better hobby environment for them. They will be happier as hobbyists over time. Yeah, it is an interesting and certainly praiseworthy challenge to try and do that. And so, yeah. Anyways, yeah. that answers your that, that answers it, your question. It, it, Thank you for it answers that. a question. Whether it was the question will be for the listeners to decide. <laughs> But uh, no, thanks for well, that. We'll have to do more of these chats. We will. We will. This has been this has been really, really fun. So thank you very much for having for having me on your show. Absolutely. This has been Rick from Rick and Ricky's Scottish Watches. I know you have a third member now, so I don't mean it's it's more it's more people. Um, you can check out their show. Uh, I guess where where you can get podcasts. You also have an Instagram channel, right? Yeah. So you can check out if you basically just put Scottish Watches 
into the internet. It will bring you up the, there's three YouTube channels. There's about half a dozen to a dozen people involved in producing content for us, both on the website and on the YouTube channels and on the podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, go check it out. Subscribe. Wonderful. Well, leave us a comment, whatever you enjoy. All that good stuff. Rick, thank you so much. We'll talk to you no next problem. time. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?